0: Now, last time, you remember, we came up through the uh, Smyrna church period, which brought us up to right about 300 AD, 325, somewhere in there. And uh, tonight, we're ready to start the, the Pergamos church period. I think, personally, from my own study of history uh, and the Bible, I think probably the Pergamos church period, is, to me, is probably the, the greatest single point in history of the New Testament times. Um, we'll see why that is tonight we saw, uh, last time we talked about we continued to talk about the rise of the Gnostics and Gnosticism we saw how that the ideas and the concepts in time developed into uh, Bible teachings or Bible heresies and how that thing all worked its way through uh, and we saw how the corruption began to spread uh, we saw the New Testament Greek manuscript and this is going to be very important We saw the New Testament Greek manuscript that was in Antioch and we watched how it went to Alexandria uh, from Antioch. And then we watched how that from that point on everything began to get corrupted. Uh, We saw that uh, originally uh, the University of Alexandria or the great school of Alexandria uh, was one that was run by Philo and Pantanus and this would be uh, uh, before Christ even started his earthly ministry. And Philo and Pantanus are work, at work corrupting the Old Testament. We talked about how that they were taking the Old Testament uh, scriptures that were what we would call the Masoretic text, which is the true uh, text of the Old Testament. And they were correcting it with the philosophy of the Greeks and the, and the uh, uh, great uh, philosophers of the day and changing it from uh, from uh, from its truth and changing it to go along with the philosophical ideas of Plato and Aristotle and the rest of them. And then uh, we saw that uh, when Clement of Alexander comes on the scene, and he comes on around uh, 100 or whatever date I gave you last time, uh, we see that the school now turns to the Christian side of things. And we see that Clement of Alexandria and then Our next guy, Origen, which we studied last time, we saw how that they began to corrupt the New Testament text just as Philo and Pantanus corrupted the Old Testament text. And um, we saw then that uh, by uh, the time we get to Pergamos, that everything has been set. The Bible has been pretty much corrupt. The only thing that is lacking at this point is it went from, remember when we studied the book of Acts, we talked about the three basic cities in the book of Acts that really detail out for us everything that we need to know. We looked at Antioch, which is what was the true Bible believers. We looked at Alexandria, Egypt, which represented the world, and then we looked at Rome, which represented the western side of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, in our course through history, we've seen this thing and we've developed this thing. And now we're, we're here at Pergamos. And you can see the, the two lines are pretty about as far apart as they're going to get at this point. And uh, when we get into the Pergamos church period, we're going to follow this thing all the way through. And we're going to see uh, where not only what we've seen already, it started in Antioch, went to Alexandria and got corrupted. Now we're going to see tonight how it went from Alexandria down into Rome. And this is a key, key, key concept uh, in understanding church history. For a moment, take your Bibles and come back to Job chapter 41. And I want to show you something here that um, I think is probably one of the greatest things that God ever revealed to me out of the Scriptures. Now, Job chapter 40 and 41, without a doubt, if you don't have the note in here already, most of you probably do. You want to put it in. We've talked about this many times. Job chapter 40 and 41 are the two greatest chapters in all the Bible on the person of the devil. And uh, they're incredible, incredible, credible chapters. And um, it's a thing where uh, there's more information on the devil in these two chapters than uh, any other place in the Old Testament. Uh, just for so you have a complete deal on it, the uh, two best chapters in the New Testament on the devil will be Revelation chapter twelve and Revelation chapter thirteen. They will be the counterparts on the other side now in job chapter forty one it talks about the devil down here, and what I want you to see um, is verse thirteen and it says in forty one thirteen who can discover the face of his garment?" Or who can come to him with his double bridle? Now, he's talking about the devil here. And he asked the question, who can discover the face of his garment? And the way he words that verse, it's almost like that it's a picture of somebody, uh, you you recognizing somebody by the clothes that they wear or the changing of clothes. And um, if you look at the verse before that, it says, uh, God says, talking about the devil, I will not conceal his parts nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Those are three things that God told you and me that he will, not, uh, he will not hide those from us, that he will reveal them to us about the devil. Now let's look at those three things for a second. The first thing there he says is that he uh, uh, will not conceal his parts. And the parts of this will be the men that he uses down through history. And uh, you're going to find that God uses men to accomplish his plan. The devil uses men to accomplish his plan. And those are the parts. Then the next thing he says is he will not conceal his power. Now the power will be the nations by which the devil or his parts operate. You can have people, but if the people don't have power, then you do not going to get anything done. And the power will always be, as we know now, the power will be the nations. We saw that from our numerous studies of the times of the Gentiles and how the God, devil rules the world through nations. And then the third thing he says, nor his comely proportion. Now comely simply means plain or ordinary or unassuming um, and the comely proportions will always be the religious aspect of it. And so what he's telling you here is that God through the Word of God is going to reveal to you and me the people that the devil uses, the nations that the devil uses, and the religion that the devil uses. That, without a doubt, is one of the greatest single truths that man will ever unearth out of that book. And then he tells you the next key to the puzzle is the fact that, that God, uh, you know, uh, uh, it asked the question, who can discover the face of his garment? Now that question is answered by the preceding verse we just looked at. How will you? Who can discover the face of his garment? Anybody who understands his parts and his power and his comely proportion. That's the answer to that question. How will I discover the face of the devil's garments as he changes garments down through history? I'll figure it out by knowing who his people are, who his nations are, and where his church is at. It's just that simple. And that, I say that so matter-of-fact and ordinary, and yet, to me, that is, uh, you know, when I say that, I think fireworks ought to go off and fire sirens ought to go off, uh, it's, such an, it's such an incredible statement. That is probably the single greatest truth that human man has ever unearthed. And this is why, very frankly, uh, the devil hates the King James Bible, because you cannot trace his parts, his uh, power, nor his comely proportion through any other Bible than a King James Bible. And, uh, you know, we think, we think that the devil had all the other translations come out because he wanted to damn man's soul to hell. He wanted to destroy the church and he wanted to, you know, destroy God's people and all that stuff. Well, that all may be a part of the plan, but his bottom line deal was he wanted to, he wanted to hide himself where he could not be revealed. Because the reason why he hates that book is that book lays him out as far as his parts his power in its comely proportion. Now, if you know anything about the Bible at all, and it talks about who can discover the face of his garments, have you ever been to a um, you know a, a, a high school play would be a great example where they put on some kind of of uh, musical or whatever you know sound of music, whatever the case may be. They obviously don't have a lot of props like they do at the movie play, so it's pretty much you run a scene for a while, and then they close the curtain, and then they open the curtain back up, and while they closed the curtain, the guys went in and changed all the scenery and put it all up, and now the next scene opens up, which is the last, after the last scene, but they have changed the scenery. We used to call, uh, sometimes we'd call what, that there would be uh, act one, act two, act three, act four. Remember in the old days, in the movies, or in the, in the plays? Well, your Bible is basically a seven-act play, and uh, you're going to find that there's seven garment changes in the Bible that the devil changes the way he does things by changing the face of his garment, and that uh, that is such an incredible use of words, the face of his garment. In other words, you find out who he is by the clothes he wears. Oh, what a powerful thing that is. Powerful, just powerful. All right, uh, now I've got these down the bottom of my page here, and you probably will put it down here. I, I, uh, I, I got a little note down here that says, the great seven-act play called Life on Planet Earth. Act one will be Genesis to Second Chronicles. And, of course, during that time, the devil portrayed himself and operated one way. We know that Genesis from, uh, from Second Chronicles uh, we know that that is, the, uh, that is the calling out, the establishment, and the demise of the nation of Israel. That's what your whole Bible is about, basically, in that first act play. The second act play will be the times of the Gentiles. Here again, what does the devil do? Changes his garments. Where before he was coming at Israel from the inside, now he's coming at Israel from the outside because now he runs the world through the Gentile nations. Act two, see? He changed garments. Act three would be the first coming of Christ. Act three would be the first coming of Christ when Christ shows up. The devil again changed his tactics, and this time he doesn't come after Christ. Uh, he doesn't come after Christ uh, with the, all the Gentile nations. This time he comes after Christ through the scribes and the Pharisees. He Reverts back to to the nation of Israel. You know, he changes changes scenery again. Act 4, and this is where we're going to be at tonight, Act 4 is, takes place during the church age. And we're going to study Act 4 tonight. Act 4 uh, starts the, the, about 325 A.D. Act 5 will take place at 1500. That'll be the Reformation. Again, the devil changes again. Act 6 will be 1917 to 1948 with the reestablishment of the nation of Israel back in the land. The devil changed tactics again. This is why, without getting into a long thing and eating up our time tonight, this is why you don't find the Muslims ever being a real threat to the world before until uh, after, after 1948. There's no Muslim terrorists in, I mean, they were all over the world. There was no, I mean, they had their fights and they had their skirmish with the British, but there was, that was all territorial stuff. There was no, there was no, uh, there was no global, uh, and they ran much of the Middle East. I mean, the Ottoman Turks, they ran the whole Middle East from, well, from the end of the Byzantine Empire around, what, 1,000, 1,100, right up to 1918, right at the end of World War I. They had the, all the Middle East. You don't see them going to all the other nations and doing terrorist acts. They were, you know, they were satisfied just to stay there and kill each other. They weren't looking to kill everybody else. But in 1948, it all changed. We put in 18 and 1948 because that's the period there where, where it all works its way out. But in 1948, suddenly it all changed. And that is your sixth act of this play. And then, of course, the act seven and the final act will be the rapture, tribulation, and the second coming of Christ, and the anti- basically the Antichrist. And the devil changes again, see? Now he comes as the Antichrist. So life on planet Earth is basically a seven-act play. And we're in the middle of act four, almost to the end of act, uh, excuse me, we're at, uh, uh, we're at act seven, uh, almost to the end, but we're going to study Acts 4 tonight, Act 4 tonight, not Acts chapter 4, Act 4 of the play. And that's where we're at tonight. But I want you to have that piece of information as we kind of move through here and, and kind of look at these things because it'll help you. And I'll, I'll keep bringing a reference back to you as we go through it here. Now, as we enter the third period of church history, uh, we, from where we've come from already, we have a better understanding of where we're at. And in reality what the Church of Pergamos is is all about. And the Church of Pergamos is what I call the the, the consolidation of all the heresies. The uh, Pergamos Church period is where all this stuff is floating around out here. Some people have it, some people don't. Everybody's got different ideas about it, but in this period of time here, it all comes into focus. And everything that has been, has been floating around out there now gets formed into a doctrine. And Satan finds a place to uh, a church by which he's going to run the world in this fourth act of our seven-act play. Um, you're going to find that this church period runs about 325 A.D. up to about 500 A.D. And 500 A.D. Uh, will start the Dark Ages for us. The Dark Ages will run a 1,000 years in history. They'll start around 500 and run up to the Reformation about 1,500. And you'll find that that during this time, it includes uh, the Council of Nicaea. That's our first Christian council right here. Uh, You'll see it up here, Nicaea 325. Uh, Going into this and coming out of this, we probably won't get out of it tonight, but we'll certainly get into it. We'll see what we call the uh, Anti-Nicaean Fathers the people who come up right into this period of time uh, that are the church fathers that we're going to add to our list. We find this church referenced in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll get to it here in a moment and read it. Now, in this time period, you have the official start, and this is very important, of the Roman Catholic Church. We have watched how this thing has slowly developed, we watched how this thing has come about through the men deviating from the Word of God, forming up ideas. I showed you last time how that, uh, you know, it has the, uh, uh, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and then in the next church period, 200 years later, it's the doctrine, the deeds that become doctrines. Well, in this church period here, this is where the devil solidifies and consolidates everything for the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church is given birth right here in the Pergamos Church period. Now let's read it here together in Revelation chapter 2, and we'll pick it up here in verse uh, 12. And it says this, and to the angel of the church in Pergamus, write, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast thy my name, and hast not denied uh, my faith, even in, in those days wherein Antipodes, my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Uh, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Now, let me just say to you, before we start going in here, the doctrine of Balaam, we'll study that here, probably not tonight, because it's going to take us a couple of times to get through all of this. But the doctrine of Balaam has to do with two things. It has to do with eating things sacrificed to idols. Now, in modern day, uh, when you want to understand it, that will be a Catholic going down, kneeling down, open up in his mouth, and a priest putting that wafer on his tongue, and he's eating things that have been sacrificed to idols. And then, of course, the, uh, next, the next thing that he says, and you find this over in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, uh, where it talks about uh, to commit fornication. That's not literal fornication. That's fornication religiously by going after other gods. And you're going to find, if you go to Revelation chapter 17 and 18, and we'll get there at some point in our study, maybe not tonight, where it lines out the great whore Babylon mystery religion, the mother of harlots, a harlot connected with whoredoms, connected with, with fornication. And you'll find that the Bible says about this church that she committed fornication with the kings of the earth. And that would be a reference to the, that would be a reference to the, uh, the nations out there like Spain, Germany, uh, Portugal, uh, South America, Central America, all of those nations becoming Roman Catholic church state and committing the fornication that goes along with that spiritually, in a sense. And uh, we'll, we'll come back and we'll talk about that. Now, let me say this. The name Pergamos, very important. The name Pergamus means much marriage. And in church history, it simply means this. This is where the church becomes married to the world. This is where we find the great point of no return. It's in the Pergamus Church period where we find all of the heresy that has been floating around now since uh, the time of Babylon and how it's corrupted itself in every form. And we see that the Old Testament's now corrupted, the New Testament's corrupted. There's a thousand things out there floating around. You don't just have 66 books in the Bibles anymore, you have 6,600. I mean, everybody's got a book that fits into the Bible. And, of course, it's all for the purpose of, of confusing people and getting people to the point where uh, they don't understand what's going on. And um, this great truth has been lost by every writer that I ever read um, on church history simply because he rejected the Word of God as his final authority in church history. And I tell you over and over again, you know, you just cannot do that. If you throw the Bible out, as Philip Schaff did, as Newell did, as, you know, most, all of them did, Uh, you're you're going to get lost and never find your way out. Uh, Up to this point, um, so they, uh, you know, we have seen it. They all miss it. But this is the time where the church and the world of pagan philosophy are simply joined together uh, and become one flesh. This is the time that uh, element uh, uh, where all the material gets brought together and the devil pulls off one of the biggest snow jobs ever right under the nose of every historian on the face of this planet. Uh, I, you know, I, when I look at this period of church history, I'm, I'm overwhelmed uh, of, uh, of what Satan can do and how he deceives. And this was one of the greatest things in the history of planet Earth. And it was done right out from under the nose of every born-again child of God with a shake of the few that hold to a book that will reveal his parts, his power, and his comely proportion. Notice John in his writing in Revelation 2.13, he says this. This is where Satan's seat is. What a statement. Satan now has a seat where the Bible says that Christ is seated on the right hand of God the Father. Now you're told in this particular time in the Pergamum church period, Satan gets his seat. A little bit later on it says, where Satan dwelleth. He's dwelling here. And this is his seat. Incredible statement. Absolutely incredible. And uh, I mean, uh, what a statement. Philip Schaff didn't see it, Newman didn't see it, Josephus didn't see it, Eusebius didn't see it, Augustine didn't see it, none of them saw it. The Bible says that in this time period of church history that Satan has a seat and anybody can find out where that seat is. If you just look at the end of the verse there, it says where Satan dwelleth. And he's going to dwell in the church of Pergamus. That's, we saw where it was the synagogue of Satan. Remember that last time? But now it's where Satan's seat is, and he's dwelling in this church period. And we're going to find out tonight where he's dwelling. This brings up another great principle about the Bible and history. You know, John is a type of the church Is revealed all these things by the Spirit. And like I said, the key to you uh, getting your John is and learn it is to get on your head on the breast of Jesus and hear the heartbeat of God. And uh, you're gonna you're gonna figure these things out, and you're gonna see how these two churches developed down through the Bible. You're gonna find the comparisons. Now, Sunday I gave you a comparison of the character makeup of the devil out of Proverbs chapter six, verse sixteen to six things, six six six. Then I took you to uh, uh, John chapter fifteen, and I showed you the seven character qualities of God. Uh, and it's just that simple. There's a balance for everything. God is light, the devil's darkness. Everything down through the line. God has a seed, the devil has a seed. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, in the Old Testament, God had, a na- God had his people, the devil had his people. God had his nation, the devil had his nation. You're going to find as you come on through history, uh, the devil's got his, uh, his church, God has his church. And we ain't going to stop there. God's got his Bible, and the devil's got his Bible. And this is the things that get revealed as you come down through this thing and you see it. Now, let's talk about some of these men that bring up during this period of time, because I think they're very important, especially this first one. And you're going to hear a lot about this guy in history. And uh, everything you read, you're going to read about him. He's going to be held up as a great Christian. His name is Eusebius of Caesarea. Caesarea is where Paul was taken when he was taken prisoner on his way to Rome. Eusebius. E-U-S-E-B-I-U-S. Eusebius. He lives about 260 to about 340. You're going to find that he's been given the distinction of being called the father of church history. He's born at Palestine and educated at guess where? Alexandria. He becomes the Emperor Constantine's right-hand man and go-between for the Council of Nicaea. We're going to get into that a little bit. He worships the ground that Constantine walks on, uh, and he is a contemporary and helps start the formulation of the Roman Catholic Church by his association with Constantine. Uh, he is a phony. He writes a number of works on church history. It's all anti-biblical. And he writes a work on the life of Constantine, uh, which is probably one of the most incredible uh, works that anybody could ever do on a man. It's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, there's no question about that he worshiped the ground that he walked on. The second guy we're going to talk about, we're going to come back and see these guys uh, as we move through it. I'm just giving you their names now. It was a guy by the name of Augustine. Augustine uh, lives about uh, 354 to 430 A.D. Augustine is the first Roman Catholic educator and scholar in the early Roman Catholic Church. Augustine was the guy that wrote many, many books about the uh, Roman Catholic Church uh, as far as being the world religion. He writes a book called City of Our God, which is the most notable book that he writes. And in that book, we now as Bible believers, if I were to ask you what is the city of God, we know that from the book of Psalms where it says a Mount Zion on the sides of the north. <laughs> That's where the Bible says it's at. But he must never got to that point where he read that passage because in his book, uh, Augustine comes to the place that when he writes the book, The City of Our God, he makes Rome the city of our God. And this is where you begin to see the beginning of what we call uh, predestination, Calvinism. By the way, Calvin worshipped the ground that Augustine walked on. He was his favorite theologian. And uh, when he writes the book City of Our God, he basically says in that book and uh, lays the foundation for what Calvin was going to build on in in Calvinism a little bit later on. And he basically says that... (coughs) that uh, God is all finished with the Jews and Jerusalem is no longer the holy city the holy city has now become Rome and from that piece of uh, theology what is Rome known as today anybody want to raise your hand and, and tell me what Rome is, is, is called today uh, in, in the uh, in a biblical sense called the eternal city called the eternal city you know why it's called the eternal city? Because they believe that that's the city God's going to reign from all down through eternity. Now, let me ask you a question. What idiot with half his brain cells and the other half burned out on coke and meth wouldn't know by reading the Bible that the city of God is Jerusalem? I mean, how in the world do you get to that point where you can actually write a book that'll change the thinking of all mankind on planet Earth from Jerusalem being the city of God to Rome being the city of God. And the answer to that is, take the Bible out of their hands so they don't read it. Then you can make whatever city you want. It could be Topeka for that matter. Uh, but yet, that'll tell you, uh, you know, coming down through history. You know, the big issue today, again, is with Calvinism. They call it Reformation theology today. And uh, most Baptist churches are falling into it. Um, you 're going to find that many, many people get caught up in it, save people, and yet uh, I personally, in my own viewpoint of just knowing what I know about what I know i don 't know how in the world you could know anything about the Bible at all and ever get caught up in calvinism i, I don 't have to have somebody sit down and go through the five point tulip of Calvinism and go into the scriptures to figure out and argue back and forth. All you gotta tell me is that John Calvin got his theology from Augustine and stopped the bus, I'm out. I don't need to know any more than that. John Calvin took what, what Augustine wrote in The City of Her God and he just refashioned it into the Christian model of it where Augustine said that Rome has taken the place of Jerusalem and now Rome is predestined by God to be the eternal city, chosen by God, John uh, Calvin just took it and, sh- and put it in that God didn't choose cities, he choose individuals. And that's, that's how it works, just like that. And uh, that's where it comes from. And I wouldn't, uh, you know, I mean, on the, on the other side of it, I mean, uh, why is it called Calvinism? It's called Calvinism because nobody ever heard of it till John Calvin. Well, he lived in 1500. For 1500 years, the only body who believed in predestination was the Roman Catholic Church. It's pretty easy, but I don't know, a lot of dumb people out there. (laughs) Then you have a guy by the name of Athanasius, A-T-H-A-N-A-S-I-U-S. He lives about 293 to 373. He's a bishop of Alexandria, pastor. And uh, a little bit later on when uh, Constantine calls the council of Nicaea. Now, let, we're, we're going to get into the Council of see here, uh, maybe not tonight in depth, but we'll get into it, but let me tell you, anybody know what that council was called for? Anybody? Raise your hand. I know you probably know, John. Hang on, Steve. Joe? Was it over uh, baptism regeneration? No, no, it was. I mean, I'm, that was probably part of it, but they had a main thing that they called this council for. Steve? That, that's true, but get them together on what issue? That's the point. No? Mm-mm, mm-mm, no. I mean, that came along with it, but there was one central issue that had arisen that Athanasius was part of that brought the council together. John? Which is what? What? No. Well, yes, but no, the deity of Christ is what it was. Uh, the issue had arisen that Christ was not God. And uh, all the other stuff was, was was bought along with it. But this was the central reason why they called the Council of Nicaea. A guy uh, uh, a guy, by the name of uh, Arius had come up with the idea that Jesus Christ was not God, but he was a begotten God. And that's, that's basically uh, had been floating around, and Origen and all those guys believed that. But at this particular point in time, a guy by the name of Athanasius here, he takes up the defense, and the Council of Nicaea is called to settle the deity of Christ issue. Was Jesus Christ very God, or was he a begotten God? Along with that, you're right, Steve, and Joe, you're right, too. They, when it was all done, all that other stuff came in. But this was the pre primary reason why they met. And nothing really got settled. What they all agreed on was a creed that they'd all recite. And uh, you find it down through church history, these guys were always coming up with creeds. And, um, but what that came out of this was called the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed was a piece of worthless garbage trash that basically said that Jesus Christ was begotten someplace at some time uh, and didn't say anything at all, nor did it ever solve the issue. And uh, I don't remember who said it here. Uh, somebody just said it a minute ago that he wanted to get all of his kingdom together. Who said that? Who did? No, don't be pointing fingers. You can't. Somebody, everybody's pointing to somebody. Well, oh, never mind. Somebody said it. That was, that was, that was exactly what he was trying to do. But this was the issue that he brought forth to make that happen. And you need to know that because you'll bump into that coming down through church history. We have another guy by the name of Ambrose, A-M-B-R-O-S-E, 340 to 391. And he's kind of a rich guy who throws a lot of money into the into the uh, Constantine stuff, into the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, as you notice, Ambrose lives almost up to 400 AD. Then you have guys like Panfilius, about 240 to 304, Didymus, D-I-D-Y-M-U-S, 398, Uh, CERO, C-E-R-O 325, uh, 386 um, guys like that that are are all uh, basically the same thing then you have one more guy we want to really make note of and you want to remember this and this was Jerome Jerome was not a basketball player (laughs) He lives about 340 to 420. Now, why is Jerome important? <laughs> <Yeah>. Huh? <laughs> Jerome is, why is he so important? Somebody raise your hand and tell me what, oh, wow, we know. I want to hear what Josh got to say. Yeah, Josh? Uh, he took Augustine's writings and formulated the Roman Catholic Bible. Yes, he, he translates... Uh, We're going to see it in time. I'm just giving you the bios of these guys now, and then we'll come back and we'll put them into the picture of things. He takes and translates the first Latin Bible uh, for the Roman Catholic Church, and this is called Jerome's Latin Vulgate. The word Vulgate means common. It's our word for vulgar, and uh, it basically meant that it was a common, ordinary language uh, that the common people used. There was two forms of Latin. There was a class, like Greek, there was a classical form and then there was a koiné form. And uh, Jerome's Latin Vulgate was the, uh, it was the koiné, it was the basic language that the people spoke. Now what happens is this, and this is what you got to be careful for, and we'll, uh, we'll get into more of this later, but I'm telling you these things now just so you have them in the back of your mind. When you come down through church history and you start talking about manuscript evidence, you're going to find that there's another Latin Bible that was in print long before Jerome's Latin Vulgate ever came out. And this will be the old Latin uh, that goes back to Syria, Antioch of Syria. And that old Latin Bible goes back to about 110 A.D. And it's called the Old Latin What you find with many guys who try to hype the King James Bible issue, you'll find that uh, they'll try to tell you that Jerome's Latin and the Old Latin are the same Bible. And they're not the same Bible. The Old Latin from from the Syriac uh, comes out of Antioch. Jerome's Latin comes out of Alexandria, Egypt on the corrupt text. You need to know that. But Jerome uh, brings to uh, uh, us, to the party, so to speak, the first official Roman Catholic Bible in Latin. He also founds uh, the beginning of what we know as the Order of the Monks. In other words, there were no monks till Jerome started the monks. These are key players that you're going to find. Now all these men and the writings of all the other church fathers that we've already talked about and the teachings of origin and all the heresy that has been taught comes to a great pinnacle at this first council of Nicaea in 325. And of course the council was called to begin to lay down what the true Christian church is going to believe and what it's going to follow. Every council up here from the one to Constantinople in 381 to Ephesus in 431, uh, right up through every one of these, uh, comes to the point where it is about redefining what the church is. As we go down through history and the Roman Catholic Church began to expand itself and redefine itself and take more power and become bigger and stronger, she uses these councils to redefine what she believes to get more power and get the place where she can, can do what she needs to do. But at the time we get to the Council of Trent in 1546, that council pronounced 120 anathemas on anybody who did not believe that the Roman Catholic Church was the true church. In other words, that council in, in for, 1546 defined uh, for all the Christian world what a heretic was. And a heretic would be you and me, if you want to know. That's what a heretic was, according to them. All of these councils are always redefining something about the church as far as what it believes. Very important to know that. The Council of Nicaea, we already talked about, was under the guise of the deity of Christ. But in reality, it was about Constantine trying to consolidate uh, his empire and what he did. And that's why this is so important. And, uh, and here, as we state in opening remarks on section, uh, uh, the third section of the program of church is the key. Uh, so you want to pay attention and get this thing down of how the church was absolutely married to the world, okay? Now, let's go back and show you how this thing formulated. Let me set it up for you. Up to this point, during the time period that we've studied so far... We have come through about 20 or so Roman emperors, okay? They start with, uh, with the Herods, which is the time of Jesus, and that'll be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and come up on through to the third century. There's about 20 of them. We all know about Herod the Great, you know. We know about Augustus Caesar. We know about Tiberius Caesar, Claudius Caesar, now, another thing, and I'm sure most of you know this, but maybe some of your younger ones don't know this, that the word Caesar is not a name, but that is a title. So his name was Claudius, but the title was Caesar. Be like Obama, President Obama, see? Uh, it's that same way. We have Claudius. We have Nero. In fact, I don't know if you saw it or not, how many saw on the History Channel just was it last night, or was it, what night was it? Sunday night or last night? It was last night, wasn't it? On the History Channel they had the thing on Nero, which I thought was pretty good. <laughs> what did you think of it, William? Or was you just surfing through as you went on to the I thought you were about to say me Did you see it, Josh? I, through it. I watched it for a little bit. I mean, uh, he's not going to do anything different than he didn't do it the last time I watched it. But it was the thing where, uh, but those things are very important. One of the things that they did not shame away from in any way, shape, or form was the moral decancy, decancy of, 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 all these, of all these Caesars. I mean, they, they were just absolutely ludicrous in, 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 their, in their paganism and their sexuality. And most of them are uh, bisexual or homosexual. Or, and they're just absolutely incredible. And, uh, you know, Nero, he is, uh, uh, he is vicious and bloody toward Christians. And uh, uh, the next one is Titus, and that would bring us up to about 70 A.D. It's Titus that uh, destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Uh, when he comes down and completely uh, destroys it, totally, completely. And, uh, and that takes place in 70 A.D. You have Dominican. You have Trajan. Uh, some of these were tolerable of the Jews or Christianity. Some of them are very harsh on Christianity. You had Hadrian, 117 to 138. He's moderate toward Christians. And uh, you had Antonius Pius, 137 to 161. He's the one that had Polycarp killed. Marcus Aurelius, 161 to 180. and uh, He was a bloody butcher. You had uh, Commodius, 180 to 192. He didn't like Christians, but he tolerated them. Uh, Capacarella, 1211 to 217, he hated Christians. So all the way down through here, uh, you have some 20, 21, 22 um, pagan Roman uh, emperors, Caesars. And uh, the volumes are written on them. The best book I ever found on these guys is just a little book that gives a bio on each one of them, but boy, it's worth its weight in gold. And it's called The Rulers of the New Testament by Charles Ludwig. It's not a very big book, but I like books that aren't very big, got a lot of punch to them. You get a lot of stuff out of it without having to read a lot of pages. But basically, they they all held to the same things and did the same things. But that brings us up, you know, to the next guy. All these men are pagan in their beliefs. They have as many, Rome has as many as 500 gods. They believe that they themselves are gods and represent the gods of the heavens on this earth. They all have male and female god that they believe, uh, that um, uh, they do not tolerate anybody else's beliefs in any way, shape, or form, and they'll kill anybody who does not accept them. Uh, and what they believe as the true gods, they will kill anybody, like I said, they don't. In truth, most are nothing more than um, I mean, it's just, the Roman Empire had become such a demoralized, absolute mess with the morals of an alley cat. I mean, it was absolutely, everything was nothing except focused on the flesh. Um, They murder each other for the throne. There's incest among families as a common practice. There's orgies uh, on the weekend uh, in the great palaces and the temples are built along with the party places. Uh, They have, uh, you know, we we see the... uh, we saw the movie that came out with John Belushi many years ago about Animal House. And Animal House is based on a sorority, which is based on uh, the Greek Empire, but they're all dressed in Roman togas. And it's a picture of you know, the wild, vast, ridiculous, riotless uh, lifestyle that goes on. And uh, it's, it was just that way in the Roman Empire, except on a national scale. I mean, they had, they had sexual orgies, they had food orgies. They even created things called vomitoriums that when a person could go to an orgy and stuff yourself so much that you couldn't eat anymore, then you went over and made yourself throw up and then you came back and you could eat some more. It was, it was nothing except everything pointed toward the flesh and the fleshful desires of whatever man wanted and they catered to it. Completely incredible time. Uh, time. And uh, it's during these time that Uh, If you go to uh, Italy and some of those places that you'll see the uh, Roman places like the Roman Colosseums, you'll find that I told you when we started by the time of Christ, the Roman Empire had been pretty much all the way through Europe. And in almost uh, in all of those places, they they tried to uh, uh, emulate what they had in Rome. Remember, I know you've all seen it. Remember, the you've seen the movie Ben-Hur and uh, you remember when and when Heston or Judah Ben-Hur, whoever he was at that particular point in time, uh, he goes back. Uh, he's in Rome, and uh, he's there, and he becomes that guy who he saved on the boat. He becomes his chariot driver, and he drives what is called a circus maximum. Now, this is where we get our word for circus, see? Our word for circus comes from the circus maximus, which was the, uh, the chariot races in a big open track uh, like that they had in, the, in Ben-Hur. But you remember when he went to Jerusalem back to find his, 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 his mom and his sister. He comes to the point where he also finds himself in a chariot race there. Why? Because every place where they had uh, the, uh, a Roman province, they tried to emulate what they had in Rome. And you'll find just as they had chariot races in all these places, they had Colosseum. Maybe not as grand, maybe not as big. I remember one time I was in Trier. Uh, uh, is that Germany or France? Germany. That's right. Trier. Southern Germany, isn't it? Yeah. I was in Trier, Germany. And um, uh, they have all of the, the, the uh, uh, rel- relics of the uh, Roman uh, government that was there uh, back in uh, this particular period of time. And they had a colosseum there. Of course, the floors were rotted off, and it was just the walls and the steps, but you could actually see where the gladiators were or where the animals' cages were. And that was commonplace all over the Roman Empire. And the Roman colosseum was built during this time to satisfy the lust for blood. I mean, when you turn yourself loose with the flesh, it doesn't go up, it goes down. And um, you know what? And it started out with animals against animals and then animals against men and then men against men, gladiators, you know, we all know about that. Then later on, as man's depravity of his flesh is never satisfied, then it was unarmed men and women being chased by lions and and watching them be butchered and scream and yell and and all the satisfying, I mean, they tie... uh, four horses on two arms and two legs and pull the person apart and everybody's scream and yell and it was a place where you could actually go and, you know, and enjoy the afternoon of of absolute mayhem and murder and you could even have a say, thumbs up or thumbs down whether the person lived or not. You get home with a great feeling. You really worked out your frustration, you know. and um, But that's exactly what it all was about. And a man's flesh is never satisfied. And uh, when the Christians began to grow, then uh, and became uh, against Rome, and Rome, uh, the devil uh, reached out through the Roman Empire to destroy Christianity. It was the Christians that got thrown into the arena, and uh, you know it was great sport for them to watch all the things that take place uh, that that uh, that as they killed them, and that's just what happened. And um, you know Nero, who loved chariot races. And uh, he loved to watch uh, the Circus, Circus Maximus. But during the day when he was so busy with the, with the, uh, all the business of state. Uh, so what he did was, is he, you know, he, uh, he had nighttime races, but he could not, obviously didn't have the, <coughs> we have the stadium lights on, please. He didn't have that. So you know what he did? He'd take Christians and for three or four days before that, he'd soak them in pitch And then two or 300 of them would be tied to poles along the racetrack, and he'd light them where they'd burn slow and uh, burn to death so he could watch the the horses race. I mean, it it was common practice. Those are the things that that Rome did. I told you when we started and we came through the book of Acts that remember that Rome was the greatest enemy of Bible Christianity the world has ever seen, always will be. And, uh, you know, anybody who can read the Bible can see the pagan Rome and the pagan emperors are the tools of the devil to try to stomp out Christianity. And this brings us to another great principle, you know, that we talked about, how that the devil always tries to, uh, to disguise himself in, in the whole aspect of what he does. And this brings us up to the last of the Roman emperors. I gave you, I think, 22 or 23. But the, the last Roman emperor in history... Is very important because this is where the devil changes his garments. Up to this point, the devil was operating through the Roman pagan Roman Empire. And he was killing Christians based on the fact that uh, uh, the pagan Roman Empire uh, was, uh, was, was his killing machine. But the devil knows that times are going to change. And he knows that as man goes through the process of history that nations are not going to be able to kill people uh, because they're going to become civilized, and he knows that it's going to move down a line where you're not going to be able to just do it the way that they're doing it here, So the devil knows he's got to change. This will be Act 4. In Act 4 in 325 AD, the main player here is Constantine. Constantine has been called by all the writers of church history as the last of the pagan Roman emperors. And uh, he's the key figure in this great deception that the devil pulls off and is about to take place, and he does it but no other Roman emperor can do. He literally practically brings Christianity to a screeching halt uh, for the next 1,200 years. He succeeds where the fire, the lions, the thumbscrews, the rack, the whips, the nails, the swords, the jails, the pincers, the pulleys failed. He alters the fish face of Christianity so much with this garment change that with the exception of a few fringe groups, the Bible totally ceases to be the final authority and the church takes over in the driver's seat with the devil doing the driving. And that's why the Bible says in 2.3 Revelation, this is where Satan's seat is. Constantine firmly places Satan in the driver's seat. It's just that simple. Just that simple. Now, Constantine in 313 rules the Roman Empire. His real name is Constantine the Great, and uh, he gets, as Rome always does, they get into a battle someplace, and uh, if you want to read about it, the standard work on his life is done by Eusebius, the church father, and it's basically called the life of Constantine. Now, Constantine was just as pagan as all the other Roman emperors, and he uh, he was fighting a battle one day uh, as all Romans govern Caesars did at some point they got in a battle with somebody he's fighting a battle at a place called Melvian Bridge in 313 AD and he's greatly outnumbered and when he's greatly outnumbered and he looks like he's going to be defeated the next day he goes outside his tent and he looks up in the sky and he sees a cross and uh with that cross, he also hears a voice. And that voice says to him, with this sign, thou shalt conquer. Constantine took that as a, as a word from God. And so that night, throughout his army and throughout his ranks, he paints crosses on all the shields, all of the horses, all of their armor, and they go into the battle under the sign of the cross at Melvian Bridge, 313 AD. And lo and behold, he wins that battle. And from this point on, Constantine now becomes a Christian. He gives the honor and glory of his victory to God. And uh, he comes to the place where he, uh, from this point on, he... he uh, he takes Rome, who was now pagan, and turns it into religion. So this is why he's called the last of the pagan emperors. Constantine is given the notoriety by the writers of church history and the writers of history of being the first Christian Roman emperor. And he got his conversion at Melvian Bridge. Now, he fights under the sign of a cross. About 1,000 A.D., we're going to find the start of the Crusades. And uh, the Crusaders, if you ever saw those, any movies about that, they all got crosses on their shields. Crosses on their helmets. Crosses on their armor. Uh, crosses on their horses. And that's because they're fighting under the Roman Catholic Church in a holy war. One of the things you want to remember, and this is a great little secret in history, that all Romans will always fight under the sign of the cross. You're going to find that when Constantine went out to battle, he put the cross on his, on his horses. That's 313 in, in uh, 1000. You're going to find that they put the crosses for the Crusades, and then uh, you're going to find that right up through history, all the Roman Catholics, that wherever they fight, they fight under the sign of a cross. Nothing like a King James Bible to get a good history lesson. When we were down at the Liberty Memorial um, uh, Saturday, um, there's a guy down there who really is the president of the club. His name is John Ritchie. And John Ritchie is a retired lieutenant colonel out of Fort Leavenworth. And um, he's been all around the world. And he buys a lot of antiquities from places. And he's always got neat displays. He's got uh, Roman spears and Roman swords. He's got stuff that goes back to, I think he told me that the, uh, what did he tell me? The oldest piece that he's got goes back to 10,000 years or something like that. I don't know. But uh, he brought over to me, because he, he knows I'm a pastor, and so he came over to me with a little box in a display box, and in it, uh, he had four Roman crucifixion nails that they actually used to crucify people. And he said, I thought you'd like to see this. This is Roman crucifixion nails. And I thought, wow, that's really neat. You know, and there they were, four old rusty crucifixion nails, you know. And you look real close it said, made in Rome, you know, whatever the case. But no, and there they were. And then I walked over there and I'm looking at his stuff. And I looked down here and here's a little medallion out of the Crusades. And when I looked at that medallion and I picked it up in the box and looked at it, it had a cross on it. And John had put the little notes on everything that he had, and he put a little note down there. This cross uh, was a uh, a cross that was used to fight in the Crusades, and it's a forerunner of the German World War II Iron Cross. And John's unsaved. John has no idea. But just as they fought under the... Did you ever see in 1939... Did you ever see when the Panzers overran Poland? Did you ever see on the half tracks, and ever see on the, on the Panzers, and ever see on the thing, they have a cross on them just like that. You know what that's called? That's called a Balkan cruise. That's a cross. When Adolf Hitler went to fight the Third Reich, he did it like this. You straighten that out, you know what you got? You got a cross. When a German infantryman in World War I and all the way back into the Prussian times, when he distinguished himself in battle, uh, you know what he got? He got what was called the Iron Cross. Iron Cross came in second class. That was worn on your buttonhole. Then there was one called first class. That was one that you wore on the breast pocket of your tunic, a cross, and then they had the counter part to our Congressional Medal of Honor, they had what they call the Knight's Cross, Ritter Cruise it's called. And that one was wore around your neck. And many times you'll see that uh, in some of the war movies you'll see, if you see a high-ranking German officer, uh, he'll have a cross around his neck. That's called a Knight's Cross. And the reason why Adolf Hitler used the Balkan crews on his Stukas, his Micherschmidz, his tanks, and his half-tracks. He used that on his flag and awarded his men the Iron Cross, Second Class, Third and, Cross and, and Knights Cross was because he was a Roman Catholic and all Romans Catholic fight under the sign of a cross. You know what Adolf Hitler called his deal? He called it the third what? Reich. Third Reich. You know what the Second Reich is in history? It's Kaiser Wilhelm uh, in nineteen fourteen and nineteen seventeen. You know what the First Reich is? The First Reich was the Holy Roman Empire. Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire ran from 15, uh, from 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D. How many years is that? 500 to 1500 is how many years? 500 to 1500 is how many years? 1,000. 1,000 years. So when Adolf Hitler came to power, he wanted to have a what? 1,000-year Reich based on the Roman Empire. Nothing like a Bible to figure out your history. When they started out, the Jesuits, when Heinrich Himmler started out, I mean, I got a list of my Bible here up front. Uh, We don't have time to get into it tonight because this is not what we're going to do. But since we're here, I'm going to find it real quick here. Uh, I'll show you the similarities show the similarities when Himmler wanted to start the SS they had a special place called the Velderberg Castle which was in Austria it's where the Teutonic Knights took their oath to the Roman Catholic Church Teutonic Knights were the Roman Catholic Knights it was where there that he had his SS officers swear an allegiance to uh, to Adolf Hitler in the Third Reich, just as the Teutonic Knights did to the to the uh, uh, Roman Catholic Church. Hitler has twelve apostles. He has Himmler, Goring, Sphere, Dönitz, Bormann, Goebbels, Flagelein, Dietrich, Heydrich, uh, uh, Heydrich Hess von Rippentrop, von Papen, and are all Roman Catholic. Okay? Every one of them. Adolf Hitler was a Roman Catholic. So what you have is you have this thing with the Roman Empire starting with Constantine. It never stops. It never stops. And those are little sidelines in history that once you get them and you see it and understand it, uh, it's, it's quite incredible. Well, when Constantine wins the battle... He claims to be truly converted by the sign and the victory that God has given him. He now claims to be uh, an authority on Christian theology. And he sets about, as any good Christian does, uh, winning the loss to Christ. Constantine believes that all pagans uh, uh, can come into the church and that water baptism saves you, just like Origen and all the other Gnostics and philosophers. He hated God's word. His mode of soul winning is to uh, force you to be either uh, baptized and become Christian, or they'll kill you, or in some cases, he pays people 20 pieces of gold and gives them a white robe, uh, Revelation chapter 2, if they become Christian. Needless to say, uh, they had broken all previous salvation and baptismal records uh, in the history of the church. Jack Hiles, Jerry Falwell, Elmer Towns could never touch those kinds of results. I mean, this guy actually turned the whole thing around and brought it full circle. Except nothing really changed. When Constantine, after the Council of Nicaea, and he gets his kingdom consolidated, and he gets it all under control, here's what he does. He then goes back to Istanbul, which is Byzantium back then, Istanbul today. He renames the city Constantinople, which means Constantine City, because he was such a nice, humble guy. Now, it stays Constantinople, just for your history notes, because you find three different names on it. you find it called uh, uh, Constantine City, Constantinople, up till the end of the Byzantine Empire. When the Ottoman Turks take over, they call it Istanbul. And it's Istanbul today but it was Constantinople or Constantine City back then. He goes back to Rome. When he goes back to Rome and he has this meeting and he gets it all together uh, and he gets it all solidified and everything where he wants to go, then he goes back to Istanbul, Constantine City, Constantinople, and he leaves a bishop on the throne in Rome to run the Roman church, hence your first pope, and the actual beginning of the Roman Catholic Church, 325 AD. That's where she starts. That's her birthday. When he goes back to Byzantium, it's originally called Byzantium because it's part of the Byzantine Empire, okay? He changes it to Constantinople after himself, and then the Turks change it to Istanbul around 1100. That's how it works. When he leaves, he sets up a Roman bishop to keep Rome in order on the western side, and he'll ride shotgun from the east. And now we have Rome no longer pagan, but now she's a Christian nation, a Christian city with a Christian papal authority on the throne and true Christianity can now flourish. The persecution is over. And boy, all content that old Connie did was take the pagan Rome and change its appearance. All he did was change the face of his garment. Nothing has changed. Where the old Pope pagan em- empire killed Christians because they wouldn't submit to the Roman gods, now the Roman Catholic Church is going to kill Christians because they won't submit to the Roman Catholic Church. But the devil pulled it off, man. He pulled it off. He pulled it off. He pulled it off. Now this is why in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 17, it's called Babylon Mystery Religion. The mystery is how in the world did the devil survive down through history to get to the place where he shows up on the other side today in the Roman Catholic Church. The mystery is found out in discovering the face of his garment and seeing how this thing lays itself out and how it works. How Constantine just took the old pagan Roman Empire and made it Christian without changing a thing. And now Satan's seat is here. Now the church, Pergamus is married to the world. We have the doctrine of Balaam. They're eating things sacrificed to idol and committing spiritual fornication. Every they have now the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and everything is running right on the right on time as it designed to go, and everything is right on the money. I'll change my books here. Now, what I'm about to show you is part of this Babylon mystery religion. Watch this. Before Rome had an emperor who thought he was God and represented God on this earth, who was the head of the one true setup as a God, and now that Constantine's come, nothing's changed. Now we have a pope who believes exactly the same thing. He's just religious. Before we had a Roman senate who made all the laws of state within the pagan emperor's control. Now we have a a college of cardinals nothing has changed. Before we had imperial governor, like some of the Herods that tried Jesus and put him on the cross to help control the empire for the pagan emperor, now they're called archbishops. Nothing's changed. Before we had a provincial governor, like Pilate, who had jurisdiction over Jerusalem and helped control the people for the demon-possessed emperor, now we call them bishops. Nothing's changed. Before we had what we call civets, S-I-C-I-V-I-T-A-S. We get our word civil from it. The civets uh, were, were kind of uh, low-level uh, people. We call them civil servants today who helped control the people uh, for, the, uh, for the pagan Roman emperor. Now they're called priests. Before they had temple prostitutes who served uh, all of the Roman emperors and all the hierarchy of the, of the pagan Roman government dedicated to their temples of the gods and the female deities uh, and all the supreme pleasures of the Roman Empire. Now we call them nuns. And the greatest example of this um, was, took place in it. Uh, I finally got in a bunch of the chick comic books back there. And those chick comic books are some of the greatest things that you'll ever get your hands on. There's a book out that I tried to read several times. It's about that thick. Jimmy, pull me the book off there that's got Abraham Lincoln being shot in the head. It shows his head with a smoking gun pointed to it. There's a book out called 50 Years in the Church of Rome. That's one of the hardest books I've ever read in my life. I've never been able to get through it. It's written by a guy by the name of Chickaway. And Chickaway was a Roman Catholic priest that was part of the Jesuits that got out that blew the whistle on the fact that the Roman Catholic Church was behind the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Most people don't know this, but every conspirator there was a Roman Catholic. They all took confession by a Roman Catholic Jesuit priest uh, before, they all, uh, before they all did what they did. Uh, the ones, most of them were hanged, including the ladies and the one that got away uh, up through canada roman catholic made his way back to italy became part of the vatican guard as his reward and most people would die today if you would ever say anything like that but the bottom line is back in abraham lincoln's day that was a uh, thank you. that was a uh, that was a uh, that was a common knowledge that uh, took place back then time has a way of fading it Well, i couldn't ever get through this book and I and so one day I got looking at uh, uh, chick comic books and, uh, and they're not really comic books. I mean they're for kids to read. They're great for teenagers. I mean I must be a teenager. I love reading them. Uh, but it's one of those things that he did for me in one little comic book. What I could never get through that book. It's got neat pictures in it too. I, and if you ever want to understand, it's called the Big Betrayal. There's Abraham Lincoln in the back of his head with Washington with a smoking Derringer in his hand. This little thing right here, and all the little things, that are, and every one of them back here deal with some aspect of the Roman Catholic Church. I don't know how Jack Chick has stayed alive as long as he has without <laughs> being killed. They hate him. These books are on the official index of the Roman Catholic Church that you cannot read. And uh, but in this particular case here, he lays out the assassination of of uh, Abraham Lincoln. <coughs> In, a, in an incredible way, with all the documented details in the back. My point is this it's in one of those magazines back there where he's dealing out with the Roman Catholic Church that he talks about the, in Spain in 1875, 1860, someplace in there, that they had a um, a, a Roman Catholic monastery here and a nunnery over here. Uh, When they began to tear down the nunnery, whatever would happen, uh, one of the two, they began to tear it down. They found a tunnel going between the two. And it wasn't bad enough that they found a tunnel. This monastery had been there for four or 500 years. Not only bad enough that they find a tunnel between the men's room and the ladies' room, but down there in a side room was approximately 25,000 baby skeletons. Where the fathers had impregnated the nuns And then they delivered the babies, and to protect their religion, they killed the babies and put them down in them tunnels, documented in his stuff. And uh, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Nothing changed. Nothing changed. The Roman Colosseum is converted from a Super Bowl of Christian murder into a country fair and flea market. The temples for the gods are now converted into (coughs) churches. The statues used for worship like Venus, Apollo, Jupiter, Mars are now replaced with statues of Peter, Paul, and Mary, Christ, Joseph, John, and the other Christian saints. Nothing's changed. The smoke of heathen sacrifice is replaced by incense burned by a Christian and not pagan. Uh, Same incense or nonsense, however you want to look at it. You go to Rome today, you'll find that on the backside of the Vatican is the uh, great uh, phallax symbol, the obelisk that came from Egypt. It's also covered in one of Jack Chick's books. It's also covered in uh, Woodrow's book back there on the, uh, uh, on the uh, uh, Babylon Mystery Religion, which is another great book you, you get, need to get. And uh, you're going to find that they brought that all the way over from Egypt. Uh, it was in it was in it was in one of the one of the Egyptians, and of course, if anybody knows anything about Egyptology, or you know anything about the statues like the Sphinx and the pyramid, they all mean something. The phallax symbol there, uh, going out of the Egyptian uh, culture, uh, is a representation of the man's uh, uh, sexual organ. That's what it that's what it represents. So they bring it over from Egypt and they put it in the Vatican in the back, and it's dedicated to all our God when in reality it's dedicated in its original form to all the pagan gods out of Egypt. And nobody even knows that. What's more, nobody even cares. I mean, you walk through that thing and a thousand people walk by that thing every day. They take pictures of it, they buy postcards of it, they think it's the greatest thing in the world. And yet they have no clue what its original purpose was all about. I mean, it's just the way it goes. All pagans have something that stands erect that deals with the sexual aspect, because sex is all part of their worship. Hence, the Tire of Babel. Hence, hence, the Washington Monument. St. Peter's Square. Uh, That thing in Egypt was back there around 1500 B.C. We have in Europe the Maypoles, the Totem Poles, the Pagonas, the Church Steeples, the Towers of Mecca. They all go back to the false religions and all of the ungodly, perverted, sexual stuff that goes along with it. Nothing changed. Nothing changed. The heathen beads and metals and candles are now replaced with Christian beads and metals and candles. The images of animals like the fish and the birds uh, that were once pagan with the uh, people now become in Christian worship. And that's why I said the other day, and I still got mine on. I'm not, nobody can get mad at me, boy. I ain't taking mine off. I got it right there. Constantine 325. The dove, Constantine 325. And, of course, all you have to go back to is what is it, Deuteronomy chapter 4 tells you very clearly that God's people never make any graven image of God in any form of any animal, any man, anything at all. The wearing of the cross as a Christian symbol comes into this period of time. And, of course, they look at cross, they, people, people look at the cross and because they're stupid, and I don't like the word stupid, but I'm getting to like it more because I'm meeting more stupid people. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> We wear a little cross around our neck or put a little cross on our this or that, cross on that, and we think it's a religious symbol and it means something for God. It comes in with Constantine. I had a lady one time, she, she says, why don't you, well, I, she, I, she had a beautiful little, she, she said, my, my somebody gave me this. And I said, well, that's nice. She says, I, I don't think, don't you like those? And I said, no, not really. And she said, well, why is that? And I says, she says, well, this is, a, this is an instrument that, by which my Lord and Savior died on, and I wear it in reverence to him. And I said, well, I'm sure glad he wasn't shot in the firing squad. He'd be wearing an M16 around your neck. (laughs) He got electrocuted. Would you wear an electric chair around your neck? Galatians says that cursed is he that hangs on the cross. The cross is not a religious symbol. I don't care what the song says on a hill far away. I've seen an old rugged cross. It was a Roman style of crucifixion, and it comes in with Constantine. Up to this point, there was no weddings. There was no wedding rings. There was no wedding ceremonies. The Bible mode of marriage is very clearly defined. But when Constantine brings it in, here it is. There was no Christmas before Constantine. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 10. Christmas has nothing to do. Christ was not born on December 25th. Anybody knows that and knows the Bible. Where we got the idea of December 25th? Somebody said, well, Jesus was born on December 25th. You know, or, or, December 25th in, in history is the birthday of Baal the sun god. December 25th is the right at the time right before or right after the winter solstice. And it's the time when the when the sun is closest to the uh, closest to the earth. And the summer solstice is as far as it get, far as way as it gets. All those things have to do with the pagans. They got nothing to do with God in any way shape or form, all right? Jeremiah chapter 10 here. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 1. Hear ye the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord Learn not the way of the heathen. Here it comes. And be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. Here it comes. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of his hands, the workman with an axe. They deck it with silver, with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. They are as upright as a palm tree, but speak not. But they must be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it them to do good. Now there's your Christmas tree. You know where that thing comes from? It comes with Constantine. You know how it works? Here's how it works. The Babylonians and all of these pagan people back there were big on rebirth. 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 Too bad it wasn't the rebirth of the Bible. So in the springtime, when the earth was dead and came back to life, that's when they had all the sexual stuff with Easter, Ashtar, God of Fertility, the sex goddess, because the earth was being reborn again, see? So you have rabbits, very fertile. You have colored eggs. You have all of the things that that was was an Egyptian thing, the colored eggs, all right? The heathen went out, cut down a pine tree. You cut down that pine tree on December 24th, day before Baal's birthday. You take it in there, and it tells you. If anybody's ever grown up with a family with a Christmas tree, you see exactly what's going on. They go out, they cut it with an axe, they bring it into the house, they fasten it with nails. The only part they left out was mom and dad fighting over, is it straight or not? They bring it into the house, they put it up, and you know what? They deck it with gold and silver. You know what that thing represents? Here's what it represents. That pine, that tree right there, picture the universe. That universe is a pyramid. Fir tree, pine tree is a pyramid. We'll get into that in Hebrews and Institute here coming up. At the top of that thing, what do you always have at the top of your Christmas tree? You always have an angel with wings on it, don't you? That's Lucifer, Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. You're putting him right on top of your tree. It represents the universe. That's exactly what he wanted when he said, I oh, would have been like the most high and sit on the sides of the north. See where it comes from? You don't think that the devil's going to have him cut a tree down, put it in there and, not put, and be a type of the universe for them to worship on his birthday and he's not going to get the centerpiece on the top of it? All right, the kids all go to bed. And while the night's gone, the parents put the little fifth cherub up there And they put all kinds of ornaments on it. And then they put presents under the tree. Kids go to sleep that night. When they wake up in the morning, they come down. The tree was dead when they went to bed. They come down. You know what you've got now? You've got a tree of what? A tree of life. Don't you know them balls that you put on that tree? Don't you know in reality those are pieces of fruit? Don't you know the Bible said the tree of life has 12 men or fruit on it over there in Revelation? <clears throat> Don't you know what you've got is a false tree and you've got these gifts coming down through here and they're putting on the gifts and that happens, That they put it up on the 24th and on Christmas morning, December 25th, Christmas, Christ Mass. Christ Mass, Christmas, Christ Mass. St. Nicholas, Roman Catholic. St. Nicholas is the patron saint of the children. Roman Catholic. You go to Europe and you see a picture of Santa Claus or a statue of Santa Claus, you know what he looks like? Over here he just looks like Santa Claus. Over there he's dressed like the Pope because he's Roman Catholic. That all comes in with Constantine. Now, I'm not telling you that to go throw your Christmas tree away tonight and burn the neighborhood down or anything like that. I'm telling you that because you know where these things come from. He wasn't born on December 25th. He was born in September on the Feast of Tabernacles. You can prove that in the Bible without thinking twice about it. But this is pagan, see? This is pagan. And because it's pagan, I mean, Constantine brings that stuff in. There wasn't one Christian anywhere on this planet that believed the true line of Bible believer that ever believed anything about uh, Christmas trees before uh, Constantine brought it in. After he brings it in, they still didn't believe it, but that's where the Roman Catholic Church went. They converted the pagan Roman holiday of the celestial winter solstice into the birthday of Jesus Christ. And then they took Easter and stuck it into the Passover because Easter is the word for Ashtar, the god of fertility and the god of uh, sex. And so they stuck that into the Passover, which takes place in the spring because the pagans were worshiping the rebirth of the world with the sun and all of the things that were going on and the rebirth of the earth through their sexual relationships and their sexual worship and all their sexual services. And uh, so he stuck that in and made it Christian. See? made it Christian. And uh, it's just that simple. It's just that simple. And that's just, like I said, where the image of animals come into the helpful aids and witnessing and wearing them, like in Acts chapter 19, verse 24, and uh, Deuteronomy ch- uh, chapter 4. Uh, you find, uh, uh, you find uh, back in Jeremiah chapter 44 where it talks about the queen of heaven. And that queen of heaven was worshipped in the form of Astra, uh, Ashtar, Iris, Osiris. All down through history, Babylonian, Egyptian, Assyrian, wherever you want to go, it winds up in Acts chapter 19 with Diana. One of the seven wonders of the world was the temple of the great goddess Diana. Well, when he chained that all around, the great goddess of Diana, Iris and Osiris now became the great goddess Mary, the mother of God. Greatest trick the devil ever pulled. When Constantine joined the church, or what was left of it, with the other pagan practices of Rome, he set up the Roman Catholic Church, and the devil's plan was in. Pagan Rome never became papal Rome, and when the heathens joined the church, at the point of a sword, or for 20 bucks, uh, he brought them in, with all the other stuff that he brought in, and it just absolutely destroyed everything that was left. And yet Philip Chaff, the great noted church historian who writes the eight volume, calls this time period unto Constantine, and I quote volume 3, page 67, as the downfall of heathenism. Eusebius, he was called by uh, uh, and revered by all the scholars as the father of church history, writes about this time period and Constantine's life. And if you would read it, you would think it was, it, you were reading a biography of God He says on page 213 on the book of the life of Constantine, the blessed Constantine was the only mortal man who continued to reign after his death. (laughs) Wow. Constantine's mommy, and I've told you this already, she gets in the act, she heads down to, uh, Helena was her name, she heads down to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage and guess what she finds? I told you, the original cross that Christ was crucified on. She buys that sucker up, calls Connie back, and old Connie hops it down there in the first jet out of Tel Aviv, boy, and he's right down there, and he buys that thing and sees that thing, and you know what he does on the spot? He builds a church in honor of the crucifixion of Christ, and today it's called the Church of the Resurrection. Excuse me, Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Right inside the room. Right inside, right inside Jerusalem, excuse me. Who cares the fact that the Bible says that he was crucified outside the city? See the problem you get into? When you lose your Bible which they have lost, you have the license to do what everything they did and nobody holds you accountable because there's no final authority to keep you from doing what you want to do. And that's where it's at. Well, we're just getting into this, but we'll stop there tonight and uh, we'll pick it up next time. And we've got a ways to go here with this Pergamus church period. There's a lot of things to see, but you've got a lot of information tonight. It'll keep you busy, so...